morning, one and all. Welcome to the Gnostic Church and Academy of Lord Jesus Christ. I'm your teacher of the mysteries, preacher of the heart, Brother Marty Leeds. And we are not coming live, live from Beecher, uh, Wisconsin today. We are live from Missouri. South, eastern, western, I don't even know where we are anymore. Western Missouri. Uh, we're at, we're, right now I am coming live from the Chance Interverse podcast studio. So uh, yeah, we're live. Welcome everybody. Thank you for being here. Uh, we do service every Sunday, 9 a.m. Central Standard Time, as you guys know. That's why you're here. And want to say thank you to Content Safe for getting me on Rumble, BitChute, Odyssey. We are streaming to YouTube and Rockfin. And you can get the podcast at all the podcasting places, as you guys know. You can also get this at the Flat Earth, Sun, Moon, and Zodiac app. You can get that right on the GnosticAcademy.org. You just go to that site right there. And there's a little menu. And you go click on that. And you download that. And you find your friends. It's pretty cool. So uh, you can get that there. It's educational section. And... Uh, all the sermons are there. Thank you all for being here this morning. I really appreciate it. We've got a good one today, man. This is going to be fun. This is going to be fun. This is going to be in line with what we talked about uh, last last Sunday. And it should be good. So let's get some thank yous out of the way. Remnant Highway, SSM, Small Axe, Javier, Landeros, Cat Link, Spicy Sarah, Mark Brotherson, Mark Brotherson. If you are here, please let us know how, uh, how it went with your wife and everything like that. Um, please let us know if you are here. Uh, Antonio Andrade, Javier, Jared Poole, Andrew Masonette, uh, Alicia, I spelled that incorrectly, Alicia Crawford, Dave Weiss, thank you so much, Jen Brew, the pious, and Chance Brew, the pious, thank you guys so much for putting us up last night, uh, Reese Family, Gareth Turner, Daniel Hager, Magical Stevens, Carrie Musgrave, Aaron Esser, John Vina, the truth, Sika, Lucy Short, Jason Reed, Martin Weir, Fancy Dirt 333, Anders Olberg, forgot to thank you last time, thank you, good sir, Ruth Scott Perspective 96, we'll be seeing you soon, Jack. Jackie T, we'll be seeing you sooner. Okay, thank you all for joining me this morning. Uh, we're going to do a prayer and then we're going to launch into this baby. We are um, we are in Missouri right now. Uh, Jennifer and I drove about nine hours yesterday and uh, through boring Illinois. Illinois sucks. Anyway, um, no offense to all you Flatlanders. Um, so we're spending this week and we're looking at properties down here. So it should be pretty cool. And we might end up uh, driving to Montana just for um, shizzles and giggles. I didn't bring the swear jar today because I won't be cursing. I'm going to do two weeks with no curse words. So I'm not going to be owing <clears throat> Scott's daughter anything. Okay, let's do it. This is a Choctaw prayer. O great spirit father who sits on high beneath the heavens... Creator of all life below, please hear my spiritual prayer. For I seek guidance in a world where few can lay claim to eternal peace. Grant me the vision to see beyond tomorrow's horizon, yet still accept my daily trials that must and will be faced to survive. Give me the strength to rise each day and breathe the breath of life that you have provided for me. Touch my spiritual soul so that I may use every moment to spread your sacred message of love and peace for all mankind. Amen. 
Okay, how we doing thus far this morning? 57, 57 watching. This thing is just tanking. Can you see this thing? It'll be, it'll be lucky if this church is open for another three months. Okay, good. Um, let's crush it today. We're going to do uh, Serpent Mountain and the Perennial Philosophy. So today, this is episode 52 of your Sunday morning service. This is uh, Serpent Mountain. We're going to talk about Serpent Mountain today. We're going to talk about the mountain builders. We're going to talk about giants. We're going to talk about the perennial philosophy. We're going to talk about the prison theologia. We're going to talk about why snakes. We're going to talk about a whole bunch today. So um, let's jump into it. Mark Brotherson, how's it going, my brother? How is your wife? I hope I hope everything is okay. Yeah, we might be heading up to Montana, too. We might take a longer trip and just drive over to Montana just for the hell of it. Okay, let's get this going. So I want to start off with this. This comes from William King, William Kingsland, esotericist, Gnostic, uh, Christian mystic. Um, it says this, and this will be how I want to start this today. It says, it is my endeavor now to show how that supreme knowledge, which I am here referring to as the ancient wisdom or gnosis, is, is embedded in the Christian scriptures, albeit sadly overlaid with the precepts and doctrines of men. We're actually going to talk about how the serpent mound it can be related to what we understand through Christianity. Literally what we just talked about last live stream. Where you know where Jesus went up to the top and dealt with the big old serpent? That's what we'll be talking about today. I'm not using the term gnosis as applying merely to the tenets of certain Gnostic sects, which were more or less in evidence in early centuries of the Christian era, but I am using it in connection with the definite superknowledge, which can be traced back to the remotest of ages, remotest ages and the oldest scriptures of which we have any literary records and which was taught by the initiates, adepts, and masters of the ancient wisdom in the inner circles of the mysteries and mystery cults, which are known to have existed in Egypt and elsewhere, even in the remotest of times. That is the sense in which the term was originally understood. It is the mystical knowledge which affects regeneration, rebirth into the full consciousness of one's divine nature and powers as a son of God. Listen, you ladies that are in the frickin' peanut gallery, I can hear you all the way in here and you're disturbing the service. I'll wait till they hear that. <laughs> okay, anyway, that is the sense in which the term was originally understood. It is the mystic knowledge which affects regeneration, rebirth into full consciousness of one's divine nature and powers as a son of God. That's what we're going to talk about today. <clears throat> um, I just want to read this. Basically, what we're going to look at today is that the wisdom that is shared within the Holy, within Holy Scripture, the Holy Bible, is wisdom that's been known across the world. And it's been codified and canonized and, you know, ritualized and symbolized in all sorts of different ways. But it is the exact same knowledge. And that is, that is what we teach. And I'm going to show you that today with Serpent Mound. So um, I just want to read this. The higher criticism today has destroyed the authority of the Christian scriptures in their literal form, but has offered us nothing to replace that interpretation. That's what this church is all about. These, these modern Christian churches have literalized all of this stuff, have given us no insights into what any of it really means, and because they've, they've replaced the mystery school tradition, they've offered nothing. It's basically this vacant, you know, vacuous big hole that's left with no, with no understanding of what any of this stuff means. So today we're going to tackle the, the serpent. And uh, when Jesus was brought up to the, the top and was offered all the kingdoms of the world. So today we're going to talk about the perennial philosophy. The perennial philosophy is also referred to as perennialism and perennial wisdom. Hold on one second. Hey, hey guys. Can you go like in the kitchen? I can just, like, I just hear the background of myself and it's really annoying oh, listening to me. I don't know how anybody's doing that. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, sorry. 
I had to listen to myself echo in the background, and that's awful. So the perennial philosophy is also referred to as perennialism and perennial wisdom. is a perspective in philosophy and spirituality, this is what we teach, that views all the world's religious traditions as sharing a single metaphysical truth or origin from which all the esoteric and exoteric knowledge and doctrine has grown. Let's say this again. We teach the Prisca Theologia. It's the understanding that there's one church, there's one God, there's one the theology, there's one religion, there's one spiritual process, there's one path. There's one, you know, all of that sort of stuff. The perennial philosophy is just basically, in one sense, another way of saying this. It's basically saying, look, uh, all of this, all of these religions, all these wisdom traditions, they all point to one source, a single metaphysical truth or origin from which all esoteric and exoteric knowledge and doctrine has grown. Now, we as humanity, it seems to we go away from source and back to source, away from source and back to source, in and out, in and out, exhale, inhale. The waves go out, the waves come back in. We go into this knowledge and we come out of it. And right now it seems to be we're coming into this knowledge. We're coming back into this knowledge about who we are, what we're doing here, and, and all of that. And once again, we teach the Prisca Theologia through the Christian scriptures. Um, Prisca Theologia is the doctrine that asserts there's a single true theology which exists, which threads through all the religions, and which was anciently given by God to humans. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to find the universal, what I call the universal mystery religion. Beneath the fabric of nature lies an inherent religious process of soul transformation, a universal mystery religion that takes the crude human being from an ignorant, atavistic, and unconscious being into an awakened, enlightened, and fully developed man. This process, like all the laws and processes of nature itself, is available to every living human being on earth because, again, it is crafted within the fabric of nature itself. What we're going to see is these ancient mound builders, that we have no idea who they were, where they came from, where they went, why they did all this stuff, what we're going to see is that these people understood that universal mystery religion. They understood the Prisca Theologia. And they canonized that. They actually built mounds to show us that they understood it. And that's what Serpent Mound is all about. And we'll go over it today. So one of the things we know is that in Christianity, we talk about following the sun, taking up the cross, following the sun. What we're going to see is what the what the those mound builders whoever built serpent mound what they were doing was mapping and tracking god's canopy the sun the sun is the supreme symbol of the mysteries why because the sun is the doorway into the mysteries okay as we've talked about many many times before when the sun rises that's when it's day every calendar is based on the sun when it goes away that's when we get to see the night sky that's when we can you know map and track the patterns of the motions of the heavens, the whole bit. So it's all dependent on the sun. And this is why the sun becomes the supreme symbol of the mysteries. We've talked about this. The sun also teaches us about horology. Horology, Horus, is the sun god in, in Egypt, where we get the hours. Of course, a lot of people know this. Horology is a field of study in which you study the measurement of time. And what we're going to see is that all these ancient cultures, as we've seen with Christianity, what were they doing? They were mapping and tracking the heavens. They were mapping and tracking time. And they understood that there was a great story within time, mapping and tracking this. Horology and astrology is mapping and tracking time and the pattern of lights that God has ordained. That's what those studies are. When you're mapping and tracking time and you're mapping and tracking the pattern of the stars, right? You're, what you're doing is calculating what God has placed in the heavens. God has ordained those lights to be in, a, in, in the particular way that he wants them. And he's placed them there. As far as we know, they have been the same forever, literally since the very beginning. So all these cultures, what they were doing, when they were looking at the heavens, what were they doing? They were mapping God's story. And this is what we talk about. They were mapping the gospel. The builders of Serpent Mound understood the gospel. 
Does that mean they understood Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? <laughs> no, maybe not. But did they understand what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are actually referencing? The four fixed signs? Did they understand that? You bet your ass they did, and they proved it. They left it in, in mounds for us. We don't even know who these people were, but we can, we can verify what they were doing. So, they understood the gospel. What do you mean? They didn't have the Bible. They didn't have the Old Testament or the New. What does gospel mean? It means good, it means good spell from good God. See, good spell story message. You can literally translate gospel to God's story. Good story. God's story. God, good they're like good evil, God devil, not very, you know, not huge stretches here. So when you look at, you see it's a good story. It's a God story. It's a good message. Where is that message? As we know, we talked about this last last time. We talked about what is, um, it's the, the when we talk about the kingdom of heaven and uh, the gospel and that sort of thing. The etymology of the word gospel is quite revealing. Gospel arrives to us from the old English, God spell, good tidings, good story, good message, uh, the gospel is a story that God is telling. It's his story. It's God's story. It's a good story. Above our heads, we have a spinning sphere of stars. It's the spiritual. It's the spiral ritual. It's a spiral ritual. It's a spiritual. It's a spiral ritual. Above our heads, we have a spinning sphere of stars, a theater of lights, continually rotating in a consistent cyclical pattern every night, reverberating and announcing the same stellar tales as it turns and revolves around the center pole of the earth. The incorruptible spiritual realms of heaven are the place where no man in the flesh may go and distort, degrade, or debase, for they are the metaphysical, meaning they are beyond the physical. The lights that hang like lamps in the heavens are those that have been placed there by the Almighty, and these inextinguishable, indestructible, imperishable, and incorruptible lights of divine truth are signs, are the signs that God himself has put up in the heavens to direct us back home. The pattern of the celestial sphere is a story that God has placed in the heavens and is one that no man may ever corrupt or falsify, nor is it one that man may ever deny. It is one that is above all and available to all, and every single human being wakes and sleeps to the rhythm of its cycles. A great symphony of lights is being performed throughout the night sky as the harmony of spheres plays out God's song of creation above us. Ancient cultures recognize that song. They recognized the song and the story, the song that God was singing, the story that God was telling. They recognized it and put it, they put it literally into mounds in the ground that have lasted however long so that we could get that knowledge from these people that we don't even know who it is. This comes from 2 Corinthians. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. The gospel the kingdom, the king's God's dome, the gospel, God's story, the good story, the good spell, the good message, right? That's what's lost to Christians. They don't understand that the same people that built Serpent Mound were mapping and tracking the same thing that's canonized in the Bible. The kingdom is king's, the God's dome. It's the dome of the firmament that is above us. And the gospel is God's story. And that's the story that's the incorruptible that happens every single night. So this is why we say as Gnostics, we embrace all the great traditions. Because we realize that all the great traditions that actually went past all of the differentiations of culture and race and time period and all that sort of stuff, they got to some pure esoteric truth, universal, metaphysical, uh, transcendental truth. They recognized it, which gave them their purpose here. 
and then they canonize this in, in, in all sorts of ways with architecture, mounds, that sort of stuff. Today we'll be looking at, um, the, uh, once again, serpent, serpent mounds. So. But what they were doing was recognizing universals. That's what religions actually point you to is these universal things, universals and transcendentals. Our, in other words, when we go in and look at spiritual concepts, when we deduct and like when we uh, go in and try to understand them, our deductions and conclusions must be grounded in reality so that the same meaning is available to all. The same meaning must be available to all people. Anybody that puts their two feet on the cold hard ground here must is, is, um, uh, has, has this available to them, in other words, right? So if we, ha in other words, this is why I'm saying this. If we need to go make sense of Serpent Mount, okay, we have to do it, like whatever, whatever conclusion we come to about Serpent Mound, we have to come to a much similar or almost exact conclusion as to what the Hindus were believing. Or, what, you know, when we talk about all these great traditions, what they were canonizing, the same information will be at the end of that. Okay? This is why we talk about metaphysics, that all the religions, when they get to these ideas of things that are sacred and divine, they recognize that they all came from one source. And we can actually establish what this source is, learn this source, and teach it to each other. That's what I'm doing. So metaphysics, that which is incorruptible, are the laws of nature, the lights and the wandering stars of the firmament, and mathematics. And as we're going to see, that's exactly what Serpent Mount is based on. Lights and wandering stars of the firmament mapping and tracking God's story, his kingdom. That's what they were doing. <clears throat> There we can we can gain a lot of lessons from the stars. Um, sorry, give me a second. Make sure I'm getting at you guys. Okay, good morning, all you beautiful people. Whiskey, Will Gensky, Jacob Law, Eric C, Stella, Mark Brotherson, uh, JV, Verbal Swordsman, Spicy Sarah. Thank you all for being here. Okay. Lessons from the stars. These, what can we gain from the stars? Lessons from the stars. Just a few things. Number one, the stars don't lie. Neither should you. Does the sun lie to you? No. Does the moon lie to you? No. Is Orion's belt going to lie to you? No. Those things are what we call lights, and light is literally defined in an archaic and a religious sense as divine truth. And that's what they're, that's what they're exemplifying. This is what we're going to find out, that the, whoever it was that built Serpent Mound, they understood this stuff. What goes around comes around. Lesson number two. What do we learn? Save for the, the still point in the heavens, Polaris, what do we learn from the stars? What specific moral precept can we understand from watching the stars? What goes around comes around. What you put out into the world is going to come back to you. That's a good lesson in life, isn't it? Shine your light before all men. There's another lesson from the stars. Isn't that what the stars do every single night? What does the Bible tell us to do? That exact same thing? Die and be reborn. What does the moon do? Goes through a phase of, oh, it goes, oh, it's gone away. Then it comes back. What happens to Mercury? It goes, oh, 87 days, 88, and then it starts the whole cycle again. What happens to the sun every single day, every single year? Dies and be, you know, is reborn. Metaphorically, poetically, if you will. Every new day is a new day to shine. There's another lesson from the stars. Seek the center and be still. Literally just looking at our cosmos, we can find the center of the thing. We can find a still point in the center. And what is the stars telling us? What is the symbolism, the natural symbolism that the stars tell us? Seek the center and be still. 
Do you find that in any like religious, you know, like Buddhism or anything like that? Ah, we'll get at it. Uh, but, like, is there's like, uh, is, is, is it, like Jesus tell anybody to be still, anything like that? The grand order of this world is heavenly. There's another lesson from the stars. The grand order of this world is heavenly. It's sacred. It's divine. It's always darkest before the dawn. There are highs and lows, but all remains balanced. An endless world of wonder and amazement is right above us. So those are all lessons that we can gain from the stars. So, now that we know that, um, okay. So last week we did Matthew um, chapter four, Jesus tempted of the devil, where Jesus was drug up by the devil, as we all know, to the high place, in the center of the creation and was shown all the kingdoms of the world. And was Jesus led up into of in the spirit, into the spiritual realms, into the wilderness, the wild where, where no men are, where no people live, into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And we saw that the devil was Draco. And we saw that there was a big serpent up on the top of that pole star where Jesus was going to be tempted. And he said no. And then he was granted, of course, then the devil, you know, went away and then the angels ministered upon him the whole bit. We know that story. So as we can see, up in the center of our creation is a big dragon. Now, we, of course, know this. We There's Polaris is in the center and there's a big dragon that surfs around. And, of course, we're going to relate this dragon, this Draco, to Serpent Mount. What's going on at Serpent Mount? So let's take a look at the word serpent a second. Sir, um... Uh, it means to protect. It's the root meaning of to protect. It forms all parts of conservation, conservative, conser conserve, observance, observatory, observe, preserve, reservation, reserve, reservoir. So sir in there means to protect, um, to guard, to keep watch, okay? To guard, protect. That's what it says. Uh, also skill, wild, deceit. What is the devil? He's, you know, a trickster, right? Or not a trickster, um, um, a tempter. So here, serpent, 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 limbless reptile, also of the tempter, from Latin serpentum, to crawl, to creep. Of course, we all know what a serpent is. Sir means to guard with wile and deceit, to guard and protect. And what does pent mean? Pent is the root word of penta, which means five. So, so when we look at the word serpent, pay attention. When we look at the word serpent and we break it up etymology, you know, in the etymology, and we look at the, the syllables, right? Serpent, serpent, serpent. And then we go and actually find out what those things mean. They're literally telling you exactly what the constellation Draco does. Serpent. To guard, what is it doing? With wile and deceit, and what is it doing? It's guarding a star. Penta. Five. Pentagram. Five. How do you make a star? So the word serpent, sir, means to, of course, to protect, to guard. And what's it guarding? Polaris, a star at the very top. These patterns are just naturally within the creation. Okay, they're up there. It doesn't matter when, who was, when they were, wh when they existed, they're going to see these patterns, right? And obviously, what are they going to do? Make stories upon them. Now, what's so crazy is that the same story gets repeated again and again and again and again throughout history. And what is it? It's of the warrior going to slay the, just as we did last live stream. Jesus was brought up to the top. The devil tried to tempt him and he t told the devil to, you know, F off. So here's St. Michael, uh, St. Michael, St. George. There's a couple different variations of this. Same sort of thing. Dealing with a big beast and dragon. 
in order to what in order to earn his piety, if you will. These were all ones that we got from um, Europe when we were there. Just a bunch of them. Big serpent, killing the serpent. There's princess and dragon motif. Once again, you find this across the world. Everything from India to China to all these different religions to, you know, quote-unquote savage or primitive religions of like Native Americans. You find it in Greek myth, a dragon all over. There's uh, St. George and the dragon. Of course, there's uh, staff and the staff and the serpent, Moses in the wilderness. Where do you think he gets this? Where does this come from? Moses in the wilderness. Of course, Jesus said the same thing. Just as Moses lifted the serpent up in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. That's John 3, 14. Dragons all over. <laughs> you know, every, once again, everywhere from Indo-frickin-China all the way to South America, you have the dragons. I mean, Egypt. <laughs> you know, once again, just go around the world. The dragon slayer myth is something that's it's canonized in religions and folklore and myth and video games and movies. It's it's a part and parcel, of course. It's you know front and center in alchemy. You'll find a bunch of alchemical illustrations where they're dealing with Ouroboros or a serpent, of course. And then, so this leads us to, what were these guys doing then? So we have no idea who built Serpent Mound. Serpent Mound is a mound. It's about 1,300 feet long. And it's in Ohio. It's in Douglas County, Ohio. I've been there twice. I'll show you some video of it. And it's this amazing structure, and it's really well preserved. And what you can see is it's actually on, it's basically on a cliff. There's like a river, and I'll show a map here, but there's a river that goes right by it, and then there's a serpent. And then it's got all these undulations in the serpent, and all of those undulations mean something, and I'll show you what those mean, of course. But as you can see, we have serpents across the world. In, all, in tons of different religions, cultures, you know, spanning time, the same myth shows up again and again and again and again. Now, of course, Christians will come along and be like, yeah, because it's serpent, you know, Old Testament, and it's our stuff, and blah, 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 blah. No, it's not. No, it's God's. Just as we always say, you don't own anything. None of these people own the serpent. Nobody, nobody owns the stars. What were they doing? What were these cultures doing? We can actually start to see, Okay. They were mapping and tracking God's canopy and actually extracting higher wisdom from it. They were mapping and tracking God's canopy, astrology and horology, and extracting higher wisdom from it. Literally their purpose here. Literally your purpose on earth is encoded in that damn snake right there. And it's the same thing you'll find encoded as we teach in Christianity. And the Christians don't like that and we don't care at all. That is a big serpent. Now, of course, we know the serpent in the Garden of Eden. We'll talk about that. I just want to show a few pictures of this. My parents and I went there, and then um, Jennifer and I went there, and a couple times. Really amazing sight. If you get a chance to go, it is a beautiful thing. I want to show this. So this is Draco. So there's your pole star. There's your sir. To guard with wile and deceit the pent, the star, the serpent. That serpent right there that's guarding the pole star. We want to get into the center. We want to find this. We want to find the center and be still, just as the pole star is. Our cosmology is giving us moral directives, that literally the same ones you'll find in the Bible. Know me and be still. I forget what the the verse is in the Bible, but okay. I want you to look at this. So this is in you know um, once again Ohio. There's a big serpent. It's on this like ledge. There's a river that goes down right. What they're doing in Serpent Mound is actually mimicking what you see in the sky, okay? 
So the Milky Way has been known, and you'll find this once again cross-culturally, it's, you know, it's usually a river, river of stars, even Native Americans will call it a river of stars. And then, so you have this river, and it's, it's Brush Creek, and then there's this big, you know, um, you know, basically there's like this, uh, it's not a cliff or whatever, right? Fairly high cliff. And then it comes down, there's a bunch of trees, and then there's the river. And what you can see, they did this, and I'll show you this, actually I don't know if I, ha if I have this, but they did the exact same thing in Wisconsin in Franks Hill. What they're doing is this Brush Creek here is mimicking, is supposed to be related to what? The Milky Way. You see this, all this in the side there, that's your Milky Way. There's your dragon, there's your pole star, the serpent, to guard with wile and deceit, a star, a pentagram. So there's your Milky Way, which is the river of stars, and there's a big serpent. And what were the people at Serpent Mound doing? As above, so below? Were they taking everything in the heavens and bringing it down to earth? They were taking God's story, his story, that he put up there, that no man may go and corrupt, and he took it and he brought it down onto earth. They brought it down onto earth and said, look, all that stuff here, as above, so below. <clears throat> so, this is... Now, once again, there's your there's your Milky Way, there's, and we'll go into the serpent and what it all means and things like that. Now, let's talk about the mound builders. Now, most people, I, I grew up having no idea that there was mounds all over Wisconsin. So I grew up in Wisconsin. This was um, the mound builders, you know, that, that we know that there's mounds still extant, that there are, you know, mounds that are still existing in a lot of these areas. It follows the Mississippi. There's a, there's a bunch in Louisiana. They go all the way to, the, of course, England and stuff like that. And I didn't even know about these until I was like, whatever, 30 or whatever it was, mid-30s. Now, um, and they're everywhere. Um, uh, this was Ferdinand de Soto and his army to first discover the mounds, and this is what they said. Now, a lot of these mounds have been destroyed even from then. Some have been preserved, but it says here, on one mound was a terrace large enough to accommodate 12 or 13 large houses. A mound built up to accommodate 12 or 13 large houses. Think about that. This is um, this is in Grave Creek Mound. In fact, we were just driving down from Illinois and we were on the inter uh, interstate there. And I look over and there's like, you know, it's completely flat. And then out of nowhere, there's this big ass mound. Was it, was it old? Is it new? I don't know. But what you can start to see is there's a ton of this stuff. You open your eyes and you'll start to see, especially if you're in the Midwest here, you'll, you know, you can see this stuff. We're ancient mounds. Um, this is uh, Poverty Point, Louisiana. Yeah, they actually have a um, an overview shot, a bird's eye view of this. And you can see the lot of this was still, it was a whole civilization. Who were they? Where did they come from? Where did they go? What happened to them? We have no idea. This is uh, Watson Break, Louisiana, you know, especially along the Mississippi, tons of mounds. Uh, we might hit this on the way home, depending on what happens, but this is Cahokia. This is in Illinois, south, uh, south, southern Illinois. Um, and Cahokia is enormous. So this is like a reconstruction of the city that was there, but it was all built, built around what is assuredly some sort of sun temple, some star observatory, obviously, that's still there. And so there's there's your mound. Like, And who were these people? When, when did they live? Where did they go? Where did they come from? What happened to them? What languages did they speak? What kind of God did they believe in? Oh, wow. Just all gone. We have no idea. <laughs> and, you know, it's so funny. When you understand stuff like this and then you start listening to people say, well, history, you know, history this and history that, what are you talking about? 
An entire civil, the very land that you're standing on, entire civilizations have lived here that are up and gone like fart in the wind. And you're going to sit there and come at me and be like, well, the Greeks and the Romans did this 1500 years ago. What? Our history does not account for essentially any of this. What this does, when you start understanding this thing, is the, uh, these things, is, as people know, it's an expansion of your consciousness. Because something that you were completely not conscious of before, now you can see. Now that you're like, oh wait, there were mound builders. Now you go around your world, and now you're conscious of this, and you start seeing more of it. This is what, real, this is what an awakening is all about. This is what gnosis is really all about. Knowledge. You know, in, in the sense of knowing your world, knowing your place in it, knowing what you're doing here, knowing God's laws so you can follow them. This is an expansion of consciousness. How many people had no idea that there were these, you know, as far as we know, an entire civilization here that were mound builders and they're gone. So once again, there's the serpent mound. Um, there's the, and this is, um, this is Jennifer and I went there. And so there's a big like tower you can climb and, you know, look at the mound because you can't, you know, it, it, when you're on the ground, you can see the mound, the mounds are very big, but you can't, and you can make out what it is because you can see it and now you know what it is, but it's not like it's, you know, I mean, it's, uh, you know, why'd they build this? Once again, if it's like, if you can only see it from above, what would be the point of building the big snake? So this is uh, some video, a little montage that we took, um, in Serpent Mound. So, and it's, of course, it's a historical marker and, you know, they tell you all this stuff about it that they have no idea that <laughs> they always do that, you know? So there's the big tower that you can climb up and look at the whole mound. And you can see the mounds are pretty big. Like this is, you know, um, you know that's a couple feet high. And if you go to the other side, I think I've got some part of the video there. If you go to the other side, yeah, you can see they're pretty big and well-preserved. So, you know, this withstood rain and, and snow and all of that. And it's, it's kept up. So however they did it, they knew what they were doing. You know, they knew how to work the earth. And so you can see, I think it's about 1,300 feet. It's huge. It's a huge mound. And so what happens is it curls up in this, it's, uh, you know, the end of the tail there curls up into a, a spiral and then it sort of unfurls out and then it goes into basically a snake's head. You can see how, where we're supposed to be going. So you can see, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's a, if you get a chance to go, I, I any chance we drive through Ohio, I always go just because it's, it's pretty awesome. So I, I kind of bend down here to see how high that mound is. You can see, it's, you know. So um, so there it is. And so what we're going to do is actually find out what this thing was built for. And it was built to pass on the perennial philosophy. It was built to, God has a message for us, human, humankind. And these people were passing on as much as the biblical writers were. Now, what we're going to see is there's, astro this is a question, astrolog, <laughs> This is the sign that they put up. No, you can actually prove that there's astro astronomical alignments at Serpent Mound. But this is the sign that the state puts up and says, oh, are there astro astronomical alignments at Serpent Mound? Are there? Well, yes, at this point, you can absolutely prove. Um, and actually, when you look at more and more of these mounds, what that's what you'll see is that they're in, I've done this with uh, Frank's Hill, which I'll cover in just a bit. But as you can see, this is exactly what those mounds are doing. They're mapping and tracking God's heaven. And they brought it down to earth. The head of the serpent mound is lined up to the point of the western horizon where the sun sets on the summer solstice, the longest day of the year. Some think that the three main curves of the serpent's body point to the summer solstice sunrise, the equinox sunrise, and the winter solstice sunrise. And they do. Um, and then they talk about the minimum, maximum moonrise, and I think that actually calculates that as well. But what we can do is absolutely show that they were mapping and tracking God's canopy. 
Um, and it says here, due to the short straight lines and the inability to define precise alignments for the U-shaped curves of the mound, it may not be possible to determine, well, it may not be possible to determine exactly within, you know, one degree, but we can determine, yes, this is pointing to where, you know, moonrise, sunrise, that sort of thing. It's kind of a duh, right? Using a zero, alt zero altitude method of gathering the local alignments from nearby elevated hilltops, a Serpent Mound Temple yields 17 or more possible solar, lunar, and polar star alignments. And that's exactly... So these, you know, people that were just looking at this can just look at it with a, with a, you know, a discerning eye and be like, okay, where's the sun and there's the moon and then there's the, and then it's blinding to the pole star. At some point you got to be like, oh, well, these people were following God's canopy. That's what they were doing. So, um, and then it goes on to say eight or nine, you know, a bunch of different alignments and I'll show you these here. Okay. So. Basically, this is some of the alignments from Serpent Serpent Mound, you can see. So every, every undulation actually points to a position in the sky where the sun or, or moon would be, okay, depending on the year. So these are your solar alignments, and you can see there's the winter solstice sunrise. So it's basically what they were doing is they went up to, this is on a hill, right? This is on a, um, a cliff, if you will. So it's essentially the highest place in the whole area. So they're using it as a star observatory. They're just mapping God. That's all they're doing. So they're going to this serpent and they're starting at the coil as if this, you know, as if creation is unfurling out, spiraling out, if you will, just like the canopy of the heavens. So they can look up and they can look at the horizon. They say, oh, winter solstice is here. And then we can go, here's your spring, right? And then here's your summer. And then there's your summer solstice right there. It's literally giving you all the positions in where, you know, from this viewpoint, the sun and the moon. So here's those are the solar alignments. Here's your full moon rise positions. Here's your lunar alignments. So and you can even see the way they do that is when you actually take the undulations of the snake and pinpoint back to a, an origin point, and then you look. You actually have the positions like the winter solstice rise. It's going to be in this. You know those positions. There's the northern. There's the there's the the minimum and the maximum right there. So you know this is a. This wasn't done nilly-willy. Whoever did this were absolutely knew more than you and I know about the stars in the sky today. Can we, can anybody here go out and map and look at, you know, go on the top of the hill and actually point and be like, hey, the sun in the winter solstice is going to rise there. Most people can't, right? So this is a, a website you can go to. It's Moon at Serpent Mound. And um, $9.99. Thank you, Stella. Thank you, Ben and Stella. I appreciate that. God bless you. Flat Earth, are you serious? Yes, we're totally serious. Um, okay, so so there's a site, and these guys have, uh, it's David Chandler is the guy's name, and this guy has been mapping, him and his wife, I believe, have been mapping Serpent Mound for a long time. So this is one of, one of the sites that actually have come up with some of these uh, conclusions. Right, it basically says the eastward bowing curves of the serpent's body point to the moon rise and the eastern horizon for the full moons. You know, the head of the serpent is pointing to the summer solstice, just as we talked about. Um, so it just goes on to say that it's like, oh, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of alignments. Now they're focused, this site is mainly focused on the lunar, uh, lunar alignments. But um, it says the summer solstice sunrise appears in the northern curve and sets in, in uh, near alignment with the serpent's mouth. The moon is opposite to the sun in the summer, where the sun is to the north, the moon is to the south, etc., etc. So you can go and read all this stuff, but um, I just kind of want to show you this here. This is a quick video. Let's watch this. This kind of basically just shows you what's going on with Serpent Mound. 
Okay, this is a simulation of the motions of the sun and the moon in the sky. Here the yellow dot represents the sun and the white dot represents the moon. And the earth in this simulation is a flat disk and the sky is a sphere. This is the apparent view of the earth and sky if you just walked outside and looked up. It's also the view of the universe that was taken literally by all ancient cultures. So this is the North Celestial Pole, and that's the location of Polaris, or the North Star. The purpose of this uh, little exercise is to see how the motions of the Sun and the Moon would be observed at Serpent Mound. I'm going to put the season here to um, uh, summer solstice, and I'm going to put the phase of the Moon to full, so the Sun and the Moon are opposite, and let's run it until we get to moonrise. Okay, here's the moon rising, here's the sun setting, and notice where the moon appears to be, namely right in this bend of the serpent's body, the southernmost bend of the serpent's body. Let's uh, move the season uh, to vernal equinox, and let's again go till moonrise, and there we go. Here it lines up at the middle bend of the serpent's body. And let's go to winter solstice when the sun is further south, but the moon is opposite, remember, and so that's going to be furthest north. So winter solstice, and let's go to moonrise. And notice that um, if we line it up with this uh, observer, it lines up over the midpoint of this arc over here. Okay. So just a quick review and notice how he said at the beginning is like, oh, all the ancient cultures thought the earth was flat and that everything revolved around us and that's how they all calculated the stars. That's because it is. So there's that. But so that's what's going on in Serpent Mound, a highly accurate lunar and solar calculator, essentially. What were they doing? Once again, they were mapping and tracking God's canopy. I did a video called, a little documentary, 25-minute documentary called Frank's Hill and the Ancient Mound Builders of Wisconsin. If you haven't watched it, I highly recommend to watch it. But basically, I did the same thing. There was, um, I, I went to um, Frank's Hill, which is about an hour and a half, something like that, from my hometown, driving west along the Wisconsin River. And there's this place where it's um, right outside of Muscaday is the city and um, Sleepy Little River Town is what it is. But there's these two mounds, um, you know, huge hills in the area, which you can climb up and you can clearly see that this is the highest point in the area. So it allows you to not only watch the sun on the horizon and the moon on the horizon when it's going to rise and set, but it also gives you a completely clear shot of the stars. So what I did is when I went up there as I, you know, I basically, you know, analyzed these mounds and found out that they're doing the same thing. That... Exactly what Serpent Mound is doing, the same mound builders were doing the same thing in, in Wisconsin. So there's a, another quick video of just a few excerpts from that, from that documentary. Looking towards the setting sun, we see Franks Hill West. Walking across Highway 193 and then marching up the long, rather moderate little climb, we arrive at the 12 conical mounds clearly visible from the opposing hill.
According to the Three Eagles Foundation, based on research conducted by Frank Shadewald and his colleagues, the mounds appear to track the setting sun from May 1st to the summer solstice and back again to around September 1st. This time frame represents the approximate growing season for corn in the latitude of Franks Hill. It seems more than reasonable to imagine that the 12 conical mounds represent the 12 months of the year. So, I don't know if you caught that, but basically if you go up and you look across, so you go up in the one hill and you look across to the other mounds, there's 12 conical mounds and they're, they're you know, still preserved to this day. You can go up there, it's free. And what they found out is that they, they're, what they were doing was mapping the sunrise and the sunset throughout the year. Basic, right? Now, what's so interesting is, here's another, there's one more little clip from this video, is that on the mound that you're standing on, to look at the other 12 conical mounds, to watch the sun throughout the year, right? When you're doing that, what you're standing on is uh, a serpent. Well, look at this. The mounds on Hill East are in direct east-west alignment, or the places of the rising and setting sun. Because these particular mounds were crafted upon the highest points in the surrounding area, one is able to see a 360-degree panoramic. Because of this fact, we must reasonably and logically deduce and assume that these mounds were built as astronomical markers and observatories. The mounds with the bison, the corn-husking woman, and the bird and snake are all perfectly aligned east and west, showing clearly that the mounds were used to track the rising and setting sun and moon throughout the year. What I noticed when I was up there, freezing my tush off by the way, is that when one stands on the head of the bird and looks due west, on your right shoulder will sit the pole star, or Polaris, the star that the entire circle of the heavens rotates around every single night. Circumnavigating around the pole star of Polaris is the constellation Draco, which is Latin for dragon. Draco is considered a circumpolar constellation because, at least north of the equator, the dragon never sets and is always visible in the night sky. I can't help but think as well that the bird mound may be representative of the constellation Cygnus, which is very notable in the night sky as it includes the very bright star Deneb. Cygnus just so happens to be flying right near the constellation Draco. So up in this mound, in Wisconsin, that was like, we have no idea who they were, what civilization did this. We can still find out today. We can go up just like those ancient ancestors did and walk up on that mound and map and track the same sun and the same set of stars that whoever the civilization was tracking. That's what, that's, so <laughs> here we have <clears throat> Ohio, big ass serpent tracking God's canopy. Wisconsin, big ass serpent, tracking what? God's canopy, right? That mound that I'm standing on, you look here, it's Deneb, it's a bird, there's a bird there. You look here, it, well, you look, I guess it would be here, whatever, but you look right there, then there's a big serpent and a dragon, and then you look right in front of you, there's a serpent and dragon. What's right next to those constellations? The What's known as the Queen of Cassiopeia. Do you know what the other mound is there? It's another woman. And then there's a big beast, which is probably Ursa Major. They're literally telling you the uh, essentially some of the most important constellations for you to map and track the spiral ritual of heaven. 
Not only is it is it aligned east and west to specifically and directly to map and track the sun, but then it also, on the opposite mounds, gives you the pattern of where the sun will be rising and when it's setting. What were all these cultures doing? They were just, they were just trying to understand what God gave them. What about the Mayans? So here we have Ohio, and now we're all up in Wisconsin, and there's serpents, and then you go all the way down to South America, and what do you got? They're doing the same thing. This is Chichen Itza. That is a calendar in stone. So, as we found, whatever the... <laughs> so, when we look into the Bible, right, and we find all of this math to map and track the sun, and, you know, the, the of course, Jesus Christ being the Son of God, literally giving you the math to map and track the sun. And, of course, he goes up and deals with the big serpent. And then we go all the way to... Mexico, and it seems like they're doing the same thing. And then we go all the way up to Wisconsin, and they're doing the same thing. And then we go to Ohio, and they're doing the same thing. And then we go all the way to Egypt, and we're inundated with what? Them mapping and tracking the sky and serpents. It's the same story. This is why we call it the perennial philosophy, or the Prisca Theologia. The, sa the same story, the same religious you know, spiritual directive has been given to man and it's available literally across the face of the world. Now, now that we've covered that, we'll get back to that. So who built the mounds? Who, who built the mounds? Well, we have no idea, but this is a, I think this comes from, I forget what, this was like 1900s or no, 1897 is uh, a, I went to the national archives and this is what it says in, this is the turn of the century, 1897. You know, where did the Indians come from and who were the mound builders? You know, the origin of the mound builders of North America, who were they? We have no idea. It says in this article, though, that um, every schoolboy has heard of the mound builders and has perhaps seen some of their many mounds which are scattered all over the country. This is, once again, this is 1895, the Salt Lake Herald. This is Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City. Utah, they're saying, hey, all these kids, they've heard about mounds. Now, fast forward 100 years to when I was in school, 1997, and I didn't hear about any of it. So, even back then, it was very well known that the land that they were standing on was mound builders. It was, you know, some native culture. They made too many effigy mounds in the shape of beasts and birds. The best example of these is the Great Serpent Mound of Ohio, which is about the queerest relic of its kind in the whole world. It represents a huge uh, snake, thousands of, you know, thousand feet long, etc., etc. Of course, they just drummed all of this up to animal worship. <laughs> no dummies. They were, they were literally worshiping the same God you were. You just don't know because you don't know what you're reading. So what's interesting about this is that a lot of these ancient natives claimed, who knows if this is true, but claimed the giants built this stuff. Okay. Now, there's myths of giants everywhere, right? Now, a lot of people know this, but when you get into the Native Americans, like, you know, it doesn't matter what tribe, where it is, Blackfeet and the Paiutes and the frickin' Anishinaabe and wherever you, Choctaw and the whatever, you go across, all of these different, they had, they all were like, yeah, there was giants. There was, really, was this just like folklore and myth? No, actual giants. So the Apache Indian, Big Owl Man, the Hopi Indian, the, you know, the, the Kebio Kachina or whatever, the Ice Giants, Algonquin, the, the Creek, the Wabanaki, the Chickasaw, the Choctaw, the Cherokee, the Iroquois, the Anishinaabe, the Cree. All of them had legends, myths, history, if you will, of giants. And many of them said that, oh yeah, these were here when we got here. 
They built them. The giants built them. The Choctaw, the tradition of the Choctaw told of a race of giants that once inhabited the now state of Tennessee with whom the ancestors fought when they arrived. Here's the Comanches. Innumerable moons ago, a race of white men 10 feet high and far more rich and powerful than any white people we know now living here. I wonder if there was Jewish giants because they're probably the most rich. They excelled every other nation which was flourished either before or since and in all in a, in all in a manner of cunning handicraft were brave and warlike. Um, you know, they basically, they were high and haughty hand, uh, more giants. Navajo, a regal race of white giants endowed with mining technology who dominated the West, enslaved lesser tribes. Manta, uh, the chronicle of Peru about legendary giants described to him by the Manta indigenous people. There are, however, reports concerning giants. There arrived on the coast in boats made of reeds as big as large ships, a party of men of such size that from the knee downward, their height was as great as the entire height of an ordinary man. Though he might be of good stature. Um, the Paiutes. The Paiutes are said to have an oral tradition that told of red-haired white cannibals about 10 feet tall lived in or now, or in or, in or near what is the Lovelock Cave in Nevada. Nevada. Of course, we have um, folklore and myths and legends of giants around the world. Now, either this is just a, you know, they're, they're all making this up or no, this, they're just actually recording history. It even says this. Um, let's just actually, let's just skip this. Race of Giants, a New York Times article from 1897 described a mountain, Wisconsin, uh, huge skeletons over nine feet tall. These are the giants of Patagonia, allegedly. And look at the size. Look at the size scale here, because I want to show you more of this. So what you'll see is that a lot of these illustrations of, you know, whether these were the ancient mound builders or not. I don't know. But this is what they're saying. Oh, well, big people built this stuff. Look at the size of these characters here. That's on the left, there's your average person. And then on the right is the giant. Keep that in your mind as as we go on here. About the, the scale of those two, Okay. Of course, we have giants. We have, you know, Gulliver's Travel and all of those stories of giants that were here. The men fought with them. Sometimes they attacked, the, you know, the giants attacked the smaller people and killed them, literally ate them. History of Jack and the Giant Killer, Jack and the Beanstalk, um, you know, um, what is it? Uh, Babe the Blue Ox and you know, that whole bit. Giants in the Bible. And there and there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. There was also the count of the land of giants. Giants dwelt there in an old time. There were giants in the earth in those days. It was all old testy stuff. And also after that, there was sons of God came to the daughters, blah, 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 which were also accounted of giants. For only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the giants. It literally got a name of the dude. His name was Og, uh, which was called the land of the giants, Deuteronomy 3.13, which was the remnant of the giants. Joshua 12, 4, who remained of the remnant of the giants, for these did Moses smite and cast them out. Joshua 13, 12. Of course, they gave, they gave the credit to Moses for driving out the giants. I don't know. Uh, which was at the end of the valley of the giants northward. Then get thee up to the wood country, the land of the Perizzites and of the giants, and which in the valley of the giants of the north. Okay, so across the world, by the way, thank you, Rachel Carpenter. Thank you, Samurai Pool. Thank you, Gareth Turner. Jeremy Hines, just crushing it, brother. Crushing it. Thank you so much. Yeah, Rachel Carpenter, Samurai Pool. Thank you, guys. I appreciate that. All the tips. Gen X rated. Just just killing it, dude. Angie A, God bless you guys. Rockfin's rocking it, dude. What do we got here? Uh, Eric C, Heaven on Earth. Exactly, Eric C. You get it, right? 
what I want to, what I want people to understand is that when they look at a lot of this stuff, especially like Christians will be like, it's all pagan and like heathen. It's like, stop, stop your nonsense. Stop your hoity toity hubris. My crap is better than your crap. Look at that. I'm not even swearing this morning. You guys should be tipping me just for that. Um, stop nonsense. You know, the the hubris and the the audacity of people to be like, art the better, I got the Christ thing. Meanwhile, you would walk into these mounds, look around you and have no idea where you are, where the sun's rising and setting, the patterns of everything. You probably couldn't even point out the pole star for a lot. Not you guys, you you guys are fairly educated, but you know what I'm saying, a lot of these people, but they'll poo-poo it and they'll crap on it. You know, it's like, no. No, these people were trying to tell you about leaving in mounds for future generations like us to, to help us understand who we are, where we come from, and God's actual story. We want to get back to the pole star. We have a dragon to go fight. It doesn't matter if we have a Bible or we don't have a Bible. We're going to have to undergo that fight. Those people knew it back then. Jesus just told us about it last live stream, right? And when we did Matthew chapter 4. But the modern Christian wants to be like, no, this can't be this. It's like, no, God's story is right upstairs. These people understood it. Now, this is a guy named Jim Vieira. And Jim Vieira has collected thousands of examples. He's went through Google Books and the National Archives and stuff like that. Collected thousands of examples of people, local newspapers, you know, uh, medical journals, all sorts of stuff, talking about people found giants. People found skeletons of giants. Let's watch this. Jim Vieira. I have amassed now nearly a thousand accounts of giant skeletons in ancient America. There are other authors who um, write books about these things, and you, you will see that it is, uh, it is a lot more well-known than one would think. One of these skeletons was described to me by Henry Mather, who saw it. It's being of monstrous size. The head as big as a peck basket with double teeth all round. The eyes of that extinct species of giant whose bones fill the mounds of America have gazed on Niagara as our eyes do now. Abraham Lincoln. The New York Times has hundreds of um, newspaper headlines about what they found at the time. Nine foot, over nine foot high skeleton found. Nine foot in a Wisconsin mound. This one is 10 foot nine. Giant skeletons in copper armor, things like that in the mounds, all documented. 68 skeletons averaging seven feet with many much larger. Specimens sent to the American Investigating Museum in Philly. Later, the museum claimed they were stolen and have never been seen again. You get these reports from Scientific American, American Antiquarian, the Smithsonian Records, New York Times, Town Histories. So the Native Americans talked about um, massive cemeteries filled with... um, Giant skeletons, they were dismissed as, as crazy um, you know, myths. Uh, Scientific American, a tradition of giants. That doesn't sound like an isolated ca- case, a tradition. Uh, the Smithsonian, this is one of the lot, they have many accounts of seven and eight foot skeletons in their records in the ethnology reports from 1890 to 1894. One of the largest ones, seven and eight feet. Uh, the San Diego giant, eight foot four. I know it looks fake, but this is real. Three scientists from the Smithsonian showed up. Uh, these guys were displaying this like a sideshow act at a, a World's Fair, I mean some fair in San Diego. They found it eight foot four in a cave. Smithsonian agents, they examined it, they determined it, it was authentic. They did tests on it, they bought it for 500 bucks, 
and we haven't heard from it again. The Smithsonian has 18,000 skeletons of mound builders and Native Americans that nobody can look at. Yes, this was called the largest skull in the world in Texas, found by WPA workers in the 30s. Right there. They unearthed other large bones there. So, Carolyn Spark, head of the records at Texas Archaeological Research Lab, said, the particular specimen that you ask about, the large skull followed at the Morehouse site in 1939, is noted in our paperwork as missing from the collection and has been for some time. This is the norm. When you investigate these things, when you talk to people, where are the skeletons? Uh, unfortunately, a lot of times, there are some around, but a lot of them go missing. And this is the double rows of teeth. Uh, when you read these reports, you find double rows of teeth, unusually thick jaw, so this was found in Clearwater, Minnesota. The highly unusual teeth, skulls had double rows of teeth in both the upper and lower jaws. These reports are widely dispersed. This isn't just one guy who doesn't know what he's talking about. This is everywhere, hundreds of them. Uh, seven foot skeleton, double rows of teeth, skull of remarkable thickness. Seven seven foot skeletons. History of Montague, 1910. Seven seven footers. Uh, this is in Rockingham, Vermont. The jawbone was of such size that a large man could easily slip it over his face, and the teeth, which were all perfect, were double. When the skeleton was measured, Doc, this is Middleborough, where I grew up, Dr. Morrill and others found it to be at least seven foot eight with double rows of teeth in each jaw. Seven feet high, an unusual feature was a complete double row of teeth, upper and lower jaws. Uh, this was um, W.K. Moorhead, William uh, Warren Moorhead. He found eight foot skeletons. Um, in Connecticut, the archaeologist I was talking about, whose career was ruined. A large Indian mound was um, opened near Gasterville, Pennsylvania, by a committee of scientists from the Smithsonian. At some depth of the sur uh, from the surface, a kind of vault was found, in which was discovered the skeleton of a giant measuring seven foot two inches, ornamented with a copper crown. On the stones which covered the vault were carved inscriptions, hieroglyphs, and when deciphered, will doubtless lift the veil that now shrouds the history of the race of people that once inhabited the par this part of the continent. The relics have been carefully packed and forwarded to the Smithsonian Institution, and they are said to be the most interesting collection ever found in the U.S. The explorers are now at work on another mound in Barton uh, County, Pennsylvania. So, as you can see, the Smithsonian got all of these relics of course this is how it's done right um you know they, they they fund all of these scientists many of these scientists legitimate scholars legitimate scientists people think that if you work for the smithsonian or if you work for you know uh, some of these corporations you're automatically guilty no a lot of times they're using these people they're pawns in their little game so they'll send real scientists out right and if the site and the scientists will find like whatever it is like archaeologist, whatever it is, right? Jesus, there's big freaking bones. Then they give it to Smithsonian. Smithsonian hides it, and then they destroy their career. <laughs> you know, it's like they were doing with that whole jab thing with the doctors and stuff. It's like the same thing. It's like they're using the same tactics. So the Smithsonian is well known to fund all of this stuff, to bury history. You, you say, you go up to your everyday normie and be like, yeah, giants probably lived here maybe like, you know, a thousand years ago. You, be, you look like you're nuts. Okay, except every culture before us has told this. Our holy Bible tells us this. And you can see if you just do a little bit of digging, holy shnikes, the amount of evidence you have that there were giants here is retarded. 
it's it's there's it, you know you, you this is a rabbit hole you'll go down forever really okay Javier you spin me right round Polaris round like a thank you so much I appreciate that Jared Poole thank you so much my brother I appreciate that okay um, yes, so, you know, once again, so they have the Smithsonian paying for all this and then burying your history. And now if you brought up giants, you look like an idiot. But then, you know, you know, so this is a finding, this comes from, once again, I think 1897, 1897 National Archives. Um, finding skeleton of giant, period. The work has been thoroughly done and leaves no room for doubt as to the accuracy of its results. <laughs> So, you know, so now when Jennifer and I went to Europe, we traveled all over and we did, we visited maybe like 12 cathedrals and like, you know, this was the, called the Hall of Liberation. It's this massive hall. And, you know, when you look at this, like here's me, here's Jennifer and I. Now for scale reference here, Jennifer and I are a cross between a hobbit and a Keebler elf. So, you know, we're about five foot nothing and a half on average. So just take that into consideration. But now look at Jennifer and I, and then look at that big angel behind us. Now, now go back and look at all of those pictures that I showed where it showed the size of giants, right? I don't know if I have it right here. And then the size of the peoples. There's another one here. Is that this one? No. Uh, let's go this one here. So there's Jennifer and I. Now look at that big angel behind us and the size of it in, in comparison. Okay. Now look at this. <laughs> okay. Does that look about right? Does that look about right? There. This is the Hall of Liberation. Massive hall. How did they build it? Okay. Now, and there's the Patagonia Giants. So exactly how it was illustrated back in the day. Exactly what they said. Now you put a person like myself and Jennifer up to that and you would say, well, that looks like a giant. That would be very giant-esque, almost to the T, exactly what they said. So now, I'm me on the right there, that's me once again wearing my fantastic outfit. I really should start a, anyway, fashion design company. So look at the bricks behind that. Look at the bricks behind that. Now, to the right is actually a doorway, and the and the doorway looks roughly about the size of us, right? You know, you know, a little bit taller, of course. You say, "Well, the doorway isn't the size of people, right?" One of the first things that Jennifer and I said when we went in there is, "It looked like they manipulated the doors. It looked like there was you could see that it was one of the first things I said was walking through the doors. I was like, "This looks like an afterthought." I don't know if it was or not, but so look at the size of the brick, okay? Now, what I want here, let's go here. Here's the dome. This is the size of this monstrosity. Everything is oversized in it, okay? Now, this was also in Germany. This was just a big painting that was on the side of this you know, building that had been there for, I don't know how many, hundreds and hundreds of years. And it was, you know, David and Goliath kind of scene, if you will. Look at the size of those people. And look at the size of that giant. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Okay. Now, this these were the doorways all, all throughout Europe. So when we go to these old cathedrals, and you see they're just monstrous. Everything, the point I'm making here is everything is oversized proportionally. Okay. 
when you look at these cathedrals, this is the thing you have to recognize. Here's the brick. Now, me, that's right behind that brick. How heavy is that brick? <laughs> How heavy is that thing? I don't know. Have you ever picked up a cinder block before? A cinder block would basically, like if, you know, in scale proportion, it was like oh, a human can handle a cinder block a little bit bigger. Now, just proportion that out to the size of the, the person that's behind Jennifer and I, the angel that's behind Jennifer and I. Do you think those people could handle those bricks that I'm standing that I'm standing in front of? I would say yes. I would say that that makes a lot more sense than human beings built that with everything is proportionally bigger and then all you do is proportion the person out and you have a, almost like a perfect match. Now, with this in mind, once again, trying to expand your consciousness, now just go around the world. And with this in mind, look at those doors. Were those doors made by Elfkins like Jennifer and I? How about these doors? How about the size of those buildings? Okay, this is not just in Europe. This is not just in Europe. This is, here's Charleston. Jennifer and I, when we drove to uh, Flat Earth, uh, Flat Toberfest, um, not this last year, but the year prior, we stopped in Charleston, uh, which is the capital of Ohio. And... Here's the Capitol building, and everything is proportionally bigger. You can even see the the original door. You can see what the original door is, and then you can see the tiny door for us people. Look at it. Does that look like it's in proportion to these people? What? Um, you see what I'm saying? We have tales around the world, history as far as we understand, the traditions, folklores, sketches, illustrations, right? Um, from the, you know, from the mouths of these cultures themselves that are scattered across the world, they're telling us that there were giants here. These people are also telling us that those giants may be, may be the ones that had built the mounds. We have no idea. That history is gone. There's no way to verify that. Absolutely. But once again, when you look at when you look at the evidence like this, you know? Okay. So there's that. I, I just wanted to mention the giant thing because it's pretty important. But we're going to do the donation time, a collection plate time. Collection plate all. If you would like to support this fine work at the Gnostic Church and Academy of Lord Jesus Christ. If you get a chance and you and you have a few extra dollars in your pocket, please go to GnosticAcademy.org and you can become a member or you can donate or you can buy a book and you can support this fine work that we do here at the Gnostic Church and Academy of Lord Jesus Christ. And if you would like, you can go to Buy Me a Coffee or Cash App and you can throw a, don a donate, a donation that way. And I really appreciate everybody that does support the work. Um really means the, uh, a lot to us, so we really appreciate that. So, buy it now, or excuse me, buy it now. What am I saying? Cash app, buy me a coffee, and you can support this fine work here at the Gnostic Church and Academy of Lord Jesus Christ. So thank you very much. I also want to say this, and I forgot to mention this prior, my lord. Oh my god, too many graphics, too many graphics. We also do have a winner for, that's right, the Milkman of the Nort. So, uh, we did an eBay on this, and... Uh, Marty, Marty Hum, thank you so much, Mr. Hum, has purchased it for $590. So my wife is officially, um, you know, a, a painter and she's, she's earning more money than I am. So anyway, so, uh, really appreciate everybody that had a great sense of humor that saw the, you know, what we were doing with this and, and has donated. So, uh, we did find out that eBay ends up taking $80 of that money, which is ridiculous. I wonder who's behind eBay. I wonder what religion they are. 
Anyway, um, so yeah, we're only going to be sending uh, <laughs> Andre a check for like 510 bucks, but the thought was there. So uh, thank you so much, Marty Hum. Uh, we will be sending you this, and I'll send you a signed copy of the book and all that sort of stuff just for playing along and being so awesome. And just thanks thanks to everybody. I really appreciate um, everybody that uh, donated and everything like that. And the, the money will be going to a, a good man, Ange. So thank you all for that. Okay. All right, we did the, we did the mounds, we did the mounds across the world, the giants and things like that. Now we're gonna go and we're gonna bring this all the way back to the perennial philosophy and talk about once again the Prisca Theologia that there's essentially one story, there's one God, there's one cosmology, there's one spirituality, and there's one story, and these people understood that story. Okay, so this is one. Uh, this was a guy that um, a pastor that actually you know was one of the first people, white people, if you will. To rediscover America and found the mounds, we're like, oh, let's you know, you know, let's preserve these mounds and all that sort of stuff. And this was his conclusion. This was this. This is your classic fundamentalist, literalist Christian, just the same sort of Christian you'd find today. This this, this Christian is the same sort of Christian that'd be like, yeah, Noah built the boat. Let's go recreate the boat in Tennessee or Kentucky or wherever it is, and then we'll pay people and be called the Ark Experience because that stuff actually happened. This is the kind of derangement. That's going on. It was going on back then. It's going on now. Okay. Christians show up and all of a sudden they start literalizing the hell out of everything. The serpent mound in the home of Adam and Eve. So this is what this pastor said when he got there. Mr. Landon West of Pleasant Hill, Ohio. Here is the here is food for the higher critics, uh, the Egyptologists, archaeologists, and biblical students of all classes. The Garden of Eden. <laughs> the Garden of Eden, it seems, is now definitely located. The site is in Ohio, Adams County, uh, to be more precise. The discoverer is Reverend Mr. Landon West of Pleasant Hill, Ohio. Reverend, Le uh, Reverend West said he's a prominent and widely known minister of the Baptist Church, has just outlined a theory concerning the creation and significance of the mound, widely different from all those of the scientists. Of course, he believes that the mound itself was created by the hand of the creator of the world and that it marks the site of the Garden of Eden. Like, literally, this is what this guy was saying. Now, he's actually not far off. Because what's, as we know, what is he pointing to? What is that serpent actually pointing to? When you actually just do the star study, the pole star and the serpent that's, in, that's wrapping itself around the pole star. Well, guess where the story of garden, the Garden of Eden is? Right up there. So the pastor, you know, was really, really, really off. Like as, almost as off as you could possibly be as far as like, you know, the literal story of Adam and Eve in Ohio. But what were these ancient cultures doing? They were pointing to that pole star. They were pointing to the, dra you know, the dragon and the serpent that sits in the center of it. That's still point in the center that you want to get to, to receive eternal life. This is the very place that Christ entered into heaven, ascended into heaven. And guess what is right by that serpent? As we know, the king and queen of Ethiopia, Cepheus and Cassiopeia. What do they represent? Adam and Eve. So... This guy is saying, hey man, this is the site of the Garden of Eden. Now, he believed that literally to be true, and he couldn't be further from the truth. But, he is true mystically and metaphysically. That's exactly what the serpent is doing. That's exactly what Serpent Mound was doing. They're pointing to the site of the Garden of Eden. It was not an actual garden someplace in some physical history somewhere or anything like that. No, they're pointing to the stars. They're trying to tell you about God's canopy, his story, the gospel. 
these ancient, was it natives? I mean, was it uh, giants? Was it Native Americans that built this? I don't know, that history is gone, right? But whoever built it left the exact same story that you can find in Genesis. Now, Genesis, let me say this a few times. Genesis, Genesis. This is a story that this pastor said it's the Garden of Eden. And where was the Garden of Eden? What chapter? Genesis. Let's talk about Genesis. So Serpent Mound, let's go back here. Serpent Mound, as we know, is a, um, doo -doo -doo, if I have it, maybe I have it, is a big serpent biting into an egg. It's pretty much what it looks like, right? That's what the conclusion that most people come to. A big ass serpent biting into an egg. This pastor comes along and is like, this is Genesis. This is Genesis. Did I say that seven times now, I think? Okay, let's talk about Genesis. So there's a big serpent biting into an egg, and it's referring to Genesis. Okay, let's look at Genesis, the etymology of Genesis. The root of Genesis is gene, gen, Proto-Indo-European root meaning give birth, beget. Of course, that's what, the, well, that's what Genesis is. It's the creation of the world. Be, God, in this sense, is begetting the world. Um... Let's see, uh, act or process of procreation, process of being formed, a state of being procreated, reproduction, sexual intercourse, that which is produced, fruit, crop, children, descendants, offspring of the same parent. That's the root of gene. Look at, look at all the words that are surrounded by this or have this root. Generation, genealogy, generation, genealogy, gender, genitive, genitals, genius, genus, gentile. Genuine, right? Generation, genealogy, gender, genitals, genus. What are all of those words referring to? Regeneration, of course, right? To, to produce or to beget, to create, okay? Now, <laughs> Genesis is, and we'll actually cover this. We'll do a, a whole, probably two live streams called The Cosmic Egg and talk about the, what the cosmic egg means and the serpent, that sort of stuff. But in Genesis, you have the production of um, the creation of the world in six days and resting on the seventh, right? And so people have said that this is a, this is a correlate when you actually build this geometrically, right? When you basically, you start with your circle, your monad, then you build your Vesca Pisces, just as you would in a, in a sacred geometrical study, building the flower of life, the seed of life. Okay, the seed of life goes into the flower of life. As you geometrically, geometrically build this, this is naturally what it unfurled. What, you know, basically it's like, oh, the one, the two, the three, and then all of a sudden you form this six-pointed star, which is the seed of life, six around one, up, down, left, right, forward, reverse, around one. And what they're saying is that this mimics meiosis, which would be, you know, a cell uh, regeneration, doubling. You know, one becomes the two, two becomes four, four becomes eight, 16, that sort of thing. It's this idea of mimicking this geometrically anyway, okay? Um, and we'll, we'll cover that. I just wanted to mention that. But so we have a serpent and an egg, a serpent and a sphere, a serpent and a circle, okay, if you will. The serpent is the special phallic symbol. <laughs> the serpent is the special phallic symbol which veils the actual God, and therefore do we find him the constant early attended upon uh, Prepius and Lingam, which I regard as the second religion of the world. This is what he says. It enters closely into union with all the faiths to the present hour. 
We find this serpent in the Vishnus, the Hindus, in the tale of the Vedic avatars. He is the god in eternity, and many coils of the snake representing infiniteness and eternity, especially so as represented by the, uh, the Egyptians with the tail in the mouth. This, of course, be Ouroboros. There is no mythology. This is what we're saying. When we talk about the Prisca Theologia, the perennial philosophy, that there's one God, there's one story, there's one religion, right? You have to go to the source to understand what that is. Okay? Now, as we're seeing, we're going to the source of the entire creation. There's a cosmology. There's a center. There's a still point in the center. In that center is a big snake. And ultimately, what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to go one day and fight that serpent. Kill that serpent, take a hold of it, grab it, you know, tame the serpent, whatever you will, and get to the center. Okay? This is, the, this is your spiritual quest. This is St. George. This is exactly what we covered last week with Jesus. Now, let me keep reading. There is no mythology or ancient scripture in which the serpent does not bear a part. Why? Because it's part of our cosmology. Because God put it there. That's why you find serpents across the world. It's not because, oh, they were worshiping animals or they were primitives. And No, no. They knew what their cosmology was. They knew what their goal was. They knew what God had put them on this earth for, to find your center, to, to slay all the things in the world that are keeping you from your center, for keeping you from the will of God, from keeping you from honesty and integrity and heart and dedication and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Slay that thing and get to the center. There is no mythology or ancient scripture in which the serpent does not bear a part. The universality of serpent worship has long been, been acknowledged by the learned. It is called Ophiolatry, I think is how you say that has been worshipped in the lowest strat of civilization. In Egypt, we see the serpent under a multitude of symbols and connected with all sorts of worship. Assyria, India, Native Americans, all over. We meet him in the wilderness of Sinai, the groves of Epidarius or whatever, and the Symmetra, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, the point is what? It's all over the damned world. The serpent, separate or in combination with the circle, egg, or globe, has been a predominant symbol among many primitive nations. It prevailed in Egypt, Greece, Assyria, and entered widely into the superstitions of the Celts, the Hindus, and the Chinese. It even penetrated into America and was conspicuous in the mythology of the ancient Mexicans. As we saw, you go to Aztec, the Mayans, whoever those people were, what were they doing? Big serpents coming down freaking, you know, you know, literally calendars in stone. Why? They knew their path. They knew exactly what God wanted them to do. Go slay a serpent and get to the center. This is where you get your winged disc too as well. Of course, a lot of, you know, this is what they were saying. The serpent, the winged disc, flying up into the heavens. This is your Orphic egg. Okay, this is the, oh, I don't want to cover this too much, but a classic symbol within Orphism. The Orphic egg, it's the serpent wrapped around the egg. What does this mean? Why an egg? Why a serpent? Why an egg? Why a serpent? What does this mean? What were these crazy giant slash native people up on a mount, you know, up on a cliff building the serpent? What were they doing? Well, we know they were tracking and mapping the stars. They literally canonized it, you know, put it into the serpent itself. But why the egg? Why the serpent and the egg? There's fanes. A lot of times you'll see this. You actually see Jesus in a few illustrations of this as well, mimicking this sort of layout here where Jesus is in the center and he's in sort of this egg type thing and then the constellations, the zodiac is revolved around him and there's a serpent that's going up to the top of his head. I mean, why? Why, what, why do we cons constantly and continue see, continuously see this theme? 
Here's one of my favorite alchemical illustrations called Rebus. And um, I actually cover this in one of the books. Um, what's he doing? Standing on a dragon, a serpent. He slayed the dragon. That's what that guy's doing. He's holding the compasses in square, by the way. But what is he in? He's in an egg. It's an egg shape. Why? Why a serpent? Why an egg? Why a serpent? Why an egg? <clears throat> We're talking about Genesis. We're talking about Adam and Eve in a garden together with a serpent. The serpent comes and beguiles the lady and Eve's like, oh, sure. And I was like, cool, right? What is this an allegory for? What is that an allegory for? In one sense, there's lots of things going on here. As you guys know, we're talking about star study. There's anatomy going on here, blah, blah, blah. We know all that. But what what's happening in the Garden of Eden? What's the under what's the undercurrent or the, the subtext that's going on? What eventually happens when two naked people are alone together in a paradisical garden? Do you think they bang? Do you think they have sex? Well, we know they did because what happens? Then we get like Seth and Cain and all this other stuff. We know that story. Then all of a sudden they had a bunch of them like cursed according to some old testy stuff. Okay, got it. What, what what's going on here? <laughs> The woman is the one that took the snake, right? The woman is the one that listened to the snake. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and, the, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. So the woman is the first one that accepted the serpent. What is this an allegory for? What happens when you have sex? Does your little spermy serpent go into the vaginal canal of the woman and then an egg drops within her and then what happens? The serpent bites the egg. And what happens? New life is created. So when we look at Serpent Mound, what, what are they talking about here? Forget about the sun. Forget about, oh, look, this is moonrise here and the sun's over here and the winter soul. Ooh, fun. What is that story? What is that story telling you? Forget about any astrology, Genesis, blah, 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 blah. What? There's a big serpent that's do, doing this, undulating, slithering and sliding. And then what is it doing? It's biting into an egg. And what happens? New life is formed. New life is formed. The sperm penetrating the ovum or egg of the female is cryptically symbolized in the story of Adam and Eve. The very animal that tempted Eve to eat from the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil was indeed a serpent. Uh, the question uh, such a mythological scenario begs us to ask is, what else are we to assume would happen when a naked man and woman are together alone in a magical garden, but their eventual sexual intercourse? Duh then the Bible tells us that's exactly what happened. So what, what, what was the fall? What was, part of, what was part of the reason for the fall? Sexual intercourse, right? They, got, they, they literally, I mean, they took the fruit, she accepted the serpent, she accepted the serpent, and then what ends up happening? They end up, pro, they end up getting together, having sex, procreating, and then this is the fall. Right? Sine and cosine, these are mathematical terms, sine and cosine are the first functions of trigonometry. And it is most interesting that, the, that not only is the sine function abbreviated with the letters sin, S-I-N, sine and cosine, sin, but the graph itself viewed symbolically can easily be construed as a serpent or a sine wave cast out of the egg 
of creation, if you will. So either, if you will, the serpent, the egg of creation breaking open, if you will, or the opposite, the serpent biting the egg. This is the fundamentals of trigonometry. Let me ask you guys, now that you guys know all the stuff, all the math that's in the Bible, right, that we've covered time and time again, do you think the people that wrote the Bible knew this stuff? Do you think the people that wrote the Bible and translated the Bible, the people that maybe have built those Gothic cathedrals or whatever, who knows, who knows, do you think they understood this stuff? Considering we're dealing with the Holy Trinity and triangles and all the times we've dealt with triangles and this, this whole, you know, this whole thing, do you think they understood trigonometry is metric measure and trig is tri, three. You see what's going on here? This is Genesis written on an egg. Why is Genesis written on an egg? What does that egg represent? What does a snake biting into an egg represent, guys? Represents birth, does it not? That's exactly what it represents. Here's an alchemy egg. It's got the sword of the spirit. Egg standing on the table. I'll get back to this in just a second. The characteristics and symbolism of the snake is extremely important to focus on when trying to understand why the inclusion of serpents in religious and creation myths is so prevalent and ubiquitous worldwide. The serpent biting into the egg represents what? Birth. The snake is noted in Genesis to be the most subtle beast in the field, and this reference is symbolic of one's spirit, the very source that makes up one's subtle body. The snake also sheds its skin for rebirth, a reference to the process of spiritual death and resurrection. The snake slithers along the ground in a sine wave motion, or an S figure, which is the root of the words snake, serpent, slither, slippery, slimy, slide, subtle. Even the zodiac itself is often mapped and understood through this sine wave pattern. So, let's stop a second. So these guys, whoever they were, built a big serpent on the ground. The serpent is unfurling, un uncoiling, right? And it's going all these undulations and it's biting into an egg. When, when the serpent, the sperm goes and bites into the egg, what happens? Birth. Now we look at, right, new birth, generation, genesis, gender, that sort of thing. Then uh, we see all that and then we say, well, what are the qualities and attributes of the snake? What does it do? Sheds its skin, dies and is reborn, symbolically, poetically. It sheds its skin. It's a new snake, right? That sort of thing. It's also a symbol of what? Wisdom, power, that sort of thing. So this is, let's go back to, how, do you, how does the serpent mound count the moons? Let's go back to that serpent mound now. Now that we know that's like, wait, is this a reference to procreation? Are we talking about birth here? Are we talking about a sperm entering an egg? Now let's go back to the serpent mound. How does serpent mound count moons? Dave and I, this is the guy that runs the website and his wife, how would the serpent mound would register nine moons starting from the time of uh, conception? Um, or as the, the, some other people had put it, uh, put it, a child conceived on a given day of the lunar month would on the average be born nine lunar months later on the same day of the lunar month. We tried it out. David wrote a computer program, which is what we actually watched some of it, that simulated the full moon positions for several hundred years. Starting from the full moon nearest summer solstice and counting nine full moons, we land within the curve of the full moon closest to the spring equinox. It seemed that the serpent mound could indeed act as a kind of lunar calendar that could plan the conception, measure the length of a pregnancy, and forecast the birth of a child. 
So not only were these people mapping the, 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 right, the sun and the moon and the patterns of the sky and oh, this is Draco and it's right there. We got the pole star. What else were they doing? What else is that serpent doing? Not only is it telling you this is a sperm biting into an egg, but what is it actually mapping? Conception. What do we have to do? When we talk about birth, death and rebirth, conception, snake biting into an egg, what is all these themes? What is it? Birth, right? What do we have to do through Christ? Be reborn, right? Why is the process of our illumination, our salvation, wrapped up in terminology about birth and death? Rebirth, reborn through Christ. Well, because as we know, let me get back to this, our spiritual rebirth is represented is an, an, an analogous to our physical birth. This is why there's the terminology of being reborn through Christ. This is what they're doing. They're mapping and tracking birth. Not only are they mapping and tracking the, the solstices and equinoxes and all that other stuff, right? But they're also mapping the prime time to conceive a child. This um, woman, this uh, um, Iroquois woman, um, just as important as preventing an unwanted conception was planning for a conception so that there wouldn't be an undue burden on the mother by having too many children. Mothers watched the faces of the moon, whom they called Grandmother Moon, knowing that the full moonlight was the time for conceiving children. They knew that Grandmother Moon had and still has control over conception and birth. So the Iroquois women... Uh, seeking to become pregnant, watch the faces of the moon to determine when they were ovulating. Now, what's interesting about this this uh, uh, whole thing is that a lot of they used this moon to map. A lot of cultures did this, and we, in fact, we talked about it in Hawaii that they actually had specific phases names for the phases of the moon, and that they would plant crops according to the moon. These people were saying, "Yeah, we plant crops according to the sun and the moon and all that sort of stuff." We also conceive our children according to what. They conceive, they bring life onto this earth according to what? What do they follow? God's story. They're following God's story. They're mapping and tracking specifically God's story. And that's what they're following to bring new life into the earth. An unbelievably sacred thing. They're, they're following God's story. Any demonstrable relation between lunar and and this is what this, um, th this is funny. Um, this is what modern science says. So all of these cultures recognize the, the moon has to do with this sort of stuff. And then, of course, modern science comes in and says this. Any demonstrable relationship between lunar and human sexual reproduction phenomenon has been doubted or denied in a number of reports. Of the blah, 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 blah. Really? Were they from the uh, Smithsonian too? <laughs> right? So this serpent... Menstrual synchrony. The best anthropological evidence of menstrual synchrony in Native American cultures uh, has been studied by the people that is menstru menstruating women should isolate herself because she was at the height of her power. During her moon time, it's literally called moon time, she should meditate on the nature of one's life to find out her purpose. Uh, if women got out of synchronization with the moon and with other women in the household, she could get back and sitting in the moonlight and talking to the moon, asking to balance her. This is how much they, they recognize that, oh, the moon has to do with menstruation. Women and the serpent. To bring this all the way around, serpent biting into an egg, representative of what? Birth. Why the curves? Um, this David Chandler guy has shown that the serpent mound registers the full moons closest to the solstices and equinoxes, which is the 18.6 year metonic cycle. I don't want to go into that, but 
The broad curves were um, created to indicate the range of its variability. By using broad curve pointers, it caught the scatter of full moons that were closest to those solar cardinal points and encased them in their own curves. This is why they think that they could have used the, you know, as a lunar calendar. When they did this, they found that what these curves were doing was like calculating the time of optimal pregnancy. So not only were these cultures, as far as we can tell, clearly mapping and tracking God's canopy. They understood the kingdom of, the, you know, the kingdom of heaven is above and within. They understood that, you know, uh, that, 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 our that our story, that our purpose here can actually be extracted directly from the stars. Not only all of that, though, they understood procreation. They uh, clearly understood that procreation has something to do, as far as I can tell, with illumination and enlightenment, that sort of thing. But not only all of that, this snake also showed you the best time to conceive children. And it's doing what? A sperm biting into an egg. Now, the moon cycle, well, that's no good. Sorry? Oh no, menstrual cycle, I have to bring this back in, sorry. Oh my Lord, I'm all over the place now. Give me one second. Uh, let's do this baby here. So, menstrual cycle. So this is the menstrual cycle, and I wanna show you guys this. And we do a lot of work on the hands. A lot of people know this, this'll be review. But it's really important because the same story that, that those natives, giants, ooh, I don't know who they were, that they carved into a snake and we're like, yes, this is important. That same process is on your hands. God put that mathematics on your hands. And this is what we teach. So here's ovulation. So when we talk about a serpent or a sperm biting into an actual egg, that happens at a specific time in a woman's you know, uh, men menstruation cycle here. So there you have a roughly 28-day period, give or take a day or day and a half or so, right? The lunar month is sometimes calculated 29.53 days. Sometimes it's 27.3 days, averaged out at 28. Lunar calendars across the world recognize the 28. Um, even if you get like, um, you know, um, uh, I don't want to get into that. Anyway, menstrual cycle, 28-day cycle, the, the, the egg drops, right? Where, so where that sperm, that serpent would come and bite the egg, that egg drops in the woman's womb, right, on roughly around the 14th day on average, okay? So that means that cycle of menstruation, the very thing that those natives were canonizing in a big serpent and biting into an egg, they're like, this stuff is important. You got to pay attention to this because ultimately it reflects your spiritual process. That entire menstrual cycle is right here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14, and the egg drops. And then you got 14 more, and what does that do? Complete the menstrual cycle. The same thing that those people right here, the serpent mound, were mapping and tracking death and rebirth, the process of birth, how important the process of birth is, how sacred it is, right? These people were mapping that, and that same process is right here. Okay, so now I'm out of place. So when we see things like this, 
the faint, the egg and the serpent and the Orphic egg and the serpent and things like that. A lot of people look at this as like, oh, Jesus, this is, uh, you know, this is sort of like pagan. It was like whatever, like heathen stuff. And like, these people were obviously, they probably didn't have Christ, obviously didn't have Christ. You know, see the egg and the serpent and stuff like this. You see, you got the menstrual cycle. You know, when you, you see that that's that whole process of literally how when the egg drops in the woman's womb to accept the serpent sperm is on your hands and your feet, by the way, not just your hands, the same pattern is on your feet. Okay. This, now think, think about this. This is all about Adam and Eve in the garden. She accepts the serpent and all of a sudden what happens? Procreation. That's, this is exactly when the generations start from Adam. Okay. What is your spiritual process as we've covered? To get back into that paradisical garden, right? To get to basically put yourself back into eternal life. Now, all of that spiritual process is based on what? Death and rebirth. It's all really reflected about birth. Because your spiritual birth reflects your physical birth. What happens in the beginning? Adam is a whole being. There's just Adam in the beginning. And then Eve is taken out of Adam from the rib, right? Now, of course, there's a ton of allegory here. This isn't like patriarchal or something like that. No, it actually refers to math and it refers to lots of things. But the spiritual process is what? Is to, is to get back into what? A one total being where Adam and Eve are merged back into one. That there's just the one perfected form that is the Adam Kadmon that you want to, you know, essentially, you know, take up your cross and follow because what? The Adam Kadmon, the second Adam, the Adam Secundus is Christ, as we know. So what is the alchemical androgynine? The completion of the great work. It's what? It's where a man and woman is unified into one body. If you were going to like, you know, allegorize that or like give it some sort of symbol is like the merging of a man and a woman. What would that be? Would it be sexual intercourse? And what happens from sexual intercourse? A new birth? And what are you supposed to do? Undergo death and rebirth? Undergo a new birth? And what is what does all this stuff tell you? To merge all of this stuff back into one. This is why you have this this notion of um, like um, you know the, like sexual reproduction or whatever. If you as you can see here, once again, the merging of the man and the woman into one body. What is this a reference to? This, per, this what you're looking at. Every single you know uh, illustration here is a reflection of the Adam Kadmon. Is a reflection of this the in this sense the merging of all things, all opposites into one. This has an allegory and an analog into what sexual reproduction. A man and woman, the opposites coming together to what? To birth new. Now, once again, let's go back to our serpent mound. And what is it doing? What is the serpent mound doing? It's telling you the same thing. The snake biting into the egg. Sexual reproduction. And then what does it do? What is that snake doing? It's pointing to the center of the entire creation. A man, the serpent, sperm of the man, bites into the egg. New birth is formed. 
And then at when when it's laying this whole thing out on the lawn there, and what is it doing? And then where is it pointing? To the center of the entire creation. What happened to Jesus? <clears throat> he slayed the dragon. He was brought up to that top. Slayed the dragon. Said no, no thank you. And then what did he get? What was his reward? The angels came and ministered upon him. So, I hope we all learned something today. We shouldn't be afraid of um, serpents and eggs. <laughs> and whenever you hear uh, any sort of modern Christian or anything like that start talking nonsense about this stuff, well, now you now you know, okay? Snake Jones says, I'm so getting late after this. Hey, hey, that is not appropriate talk for this church, my friend. So, what do you guys think? Good stuff. When Adam, Christ is the Adam Kadmon, think about this, right? He's the Adam Kadmon, which means he is the Adam Secundus, the second Adam, which he represents the first, Right? He's like, in the sense, he's the, you know, the first was from the earth, earthy, the second is from the heaven or whatever, spirit, right? And so what is he? What is Adam Kadmon? Adam Kadmon is before Eve, which means Eve was in Adam. Eve was taken out of Adam. So Eve was in Adam. So before any of this stuff, before the separation, before Eve was taken out of Adam, and then they were in the garden, and before the snake showed up, and then Eve was like, ooh, I'll take some snake, and right? a reference, you know, to sexual intercourse. Then what happens? Then the generation goes and it falls, that sort of thing. Then you get the story. And what are we supposed to do? Reverse the process. Reverse the process. Bring all differentiations into one. Okay. That's going to do it. Did you guys enjoy? I appreciate everybody showing up today. Thank you so much. We've got 160 watching. That's great. I appreciate that. So, um, oh, great. Uh, uh, what is, I can't even say, a chave de ciencia? Is that how you say that? Thanks a lot for sharing your teachings. I was a regular Christian before, and today I can see further away with lots of your messages when I put the whole puzzle together. Look, this is, um, oh, by the way, spine, when you talk about the, when we, uh, I forgot to mention this. We talk about the spine. Okay, when you talk about the, like, this is known, like the kundalini energy. It starts at your sacrum. It starts down here. It starts in your sexual energy. And you're supposed to bring this energy up and it's serpentine, right? Correct? You're supposed to bring this energy up. And what is it supposed to go up? Your spine? And then where's it supposed to go? All Just as we saw with Orpheus and, or um, Fanes and all that sort of stuff. And Egypt and all these other places. It goes up and that sort of thing, right? Your spine is an anagram for penis. What is your What is your spine? Is it erect? Yes. And where where does the energy come from? Your penis. And where does it go? Your spine, right? As a man anyway, right? That's exactly what they're saying. <laughs> that's that's Gen I just explained Genesis to you and Serpent Mound. And saying, guess what? Same story. Same story. And the longer the Christians ignore this, the longer they're going to, you know, the the uh, the, the more they shut that that door of consciousness. They're not letting light in in this sense. No, they're keeping it out. 
Because they, they'll look at Serbs like, what kind of pagan stuff is this? Well, now i got to go to the Ark experience and get on board with the boat because that makes so much more sense. You know, no, no, you utter fools. Sorry. <laughs> but stop. Stop with your hoity-toity, your, your self-righteousness, your looking down upon other cultures. No, this is beautiful. Whatever, whatever was going on at Serpa Mount, who knows? But they were canonizing, they were, they were putting, making it, you know, crafting into that serpent the exact same information that we need today to get us out of here, if you will, to lift us up into the heavens. They knew it. And when they were building it, I'm assuming that they were smart enough to know that, guess what, we're probably not going to be around. Maybe, we're, maybe they were giants and we're like, we're probably going to end up, you know, getting out of here. Eventually, everything will be washed away in the sands of time and our civilization and our culture and all our holy books and our language is all going to go flutter in the wind. But guess what will remain? A big serpent on the ground. And if learned men and people that actually want to understand their world and actually want to understand what they're doing here and actually want to understand what God put us here for, someday some of those people are going to show up and they're going to be like, what's going on here? That's what serpent mounts for. That's what all these archaeological sites are for. You go to the Mayan temples, you go all the way to Hindo, China, freaking whatever, and you find these things and you start using what we're teaching here. You start with the basis of Oh, there's transcendentals. We start with the basis. There's universals. We start with there is one God. We start with human beings have a you know, purpose. You're gonna un, you're gonna start making sense of this stuff. Why dragons? You don't have to go fluttering around in your imagination anymore. Just look up, just like our ancient ancestors did. So, and those of you that are looking up, you guys are gubbards. You guys are looking, you guys are looking up and like, ah, oh, it's a gubbard. So I'm very thankful for everybody that does show up here every Sunday and, and is a, a supporter of the work and does buy the books and uh, just keeps this thing going. You guys are awesome. It is uh, amazing. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate it. So if you guys get a chance, stop on over to GnosticAcademy.org and you can become a member. Uh, 14 bucks for three months. Yes, that's 314. And 54 for one year. And yeah, and you can donate through that portal and all that sort of stuff. So I appreciate you guys being here and all this, all the love and the support. And I hope you guys uh, pass this out, you know, pass this along to other people. Because this is the kind of stuff we do here. We'll just go through one, one thing at a time and we'll just pick it apart and, and try to understand it. And really, you know, in this sense, you know, it sounds cheesy and sort of new agey, whatever, but expand our consciousness in the world. So when you're driving down, you know, Highway 39 or whatever, and you look over and it's like, why is there a big mound there? Was that, who, who built that? You know, you start those wheels spinning. And guess what you're doing? You're connecting to your ancestors by doing this stuff. Do you guys know that, right? When I went up on that Frank's Hill, my mind and my heart is full of like, what were these people doing? I want to know what was in your freaking brain, you weirdos. Why the hell did you do this? What, you know, that sort of thing. It, it connects you to your ancestors. That's why they left that stuff. So, go forth. And know your world. Become a Gnostic and know your world, okay? Thank you guys so much. Um, next week, we're going to be on the road still, but I think we're going to do... Um, thank you always, Brielle, Small Axe, Matt Dugas, Javier, the Spiritual Badass, Brian Verts. Thank you guys all for being here. Um, next week, we're still going to be on the road, but I think I'm going to try to do the Hamsa next. You guys know the Hamsa? It's like the three fingers and there's like two thumbs, right? And it's a really weird symbol and it's like, you know, it's 
It's been found all, literally all over the world. Like Jews use it and Hindus use it and all that sort of stuff. So I think we might do that. And that's going to be interesting. So uh, probably won't be too long, maybe like an hour or something like that. But I think that's what we'll do next. And then after that, we'll probably get back on the Matthew horse and we'll get on to chapter five. And chapter five is great because it's, I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly, it's all red letter. So it's pretty much Jesus speaking the whole time. So pretty good stuff. May you guys always keep yourself... Let's try this again. Let's start it over. Okay. May you always keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ onto eternal life. May his grace be with you all. Amen. All right, guys, that's going to do it. I will see you next Sunday. Get a chance, stop on over to GnosticAcademy.org. And yes, okay, so we're going to listen to a track called That Old Serpent, the Devil. I figured that would be pretty appropriate. This is a track that uh, L.C. King and I uh, put together. And so let's listen to that. All right, guys, I want to say thank you to Mr. Marty Hom once again for buying the, the painting and stuff like that. And we will be shipping that out. When we get home, we'll ship that. And I'll, I'm going to ship him a few signed books and stuff like that just to say thank you. So, because it was really great. Really great what he did. And Anjay, you will be getting your check for about 510 bucks because screw eBay. But anyway, so thank you to Marty Helm. Thank you everybody for uh, stopping by and all the people um, that are signed up and everything like that. That means the world to me. So, all right. I will see you next Sunday. Let's rock out. As always... Many blessings and much love to all. Squirming, another tear for you.